Let's turn our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 13 through 15. I'm going to read starting in verse 11. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 11. Let's hear the word of our Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For... If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Amen. Let's pray together for God's help. Our God, we thank you that you have spoken and that these words written by Paul are words from the Holy Spirit speaking to us today. We pray that you would help us to have attitudes this morning as we come now, uh, as we listen, that we would be hearing your voice. We pray for your Spirit's work in our heart to draw us to Christ, to know the love of Christ more deeply. And we pray that the love of Christ would compel us uh, to live for you. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Some of you may remember a news story from 2019 of a young man named John Allen Chow. He was 26 years old, and he went to an island called North Sentinel Island off the coast of India, and he was murdered by that tribe. It was a tribe that had not been exposed to outsiders, intentionally there uh, living their life uh, without influence from the outside. And so he was killed. And there was a lot of publicity about that story, uh, mainly from unbelievers. Uh, Unbelievers thought that uh, Chow was a terrible person for going to an unreached tribe, an untouched people, that he could have brought disease. Uh, and some people even were celebrating his death because they, they said that, uh, in their words, they were glad another religious zealot was taken out of the gene pool. They were glad that someone so crazy was not going to have children and pass on his religious fanaticism. Well, more uh, news started to come out about who Chow was, and Christians started to learn that he wasn't just 
some brash young man who all of a sudden decided to hop on a boat and to go uh, show up on a beach and preach in English to people who are known for killing outsiders. He wasn't that foolish. He had studied, he had gotten education and training, he had gone to a linguistic school to learn how to learn their language, and he had a goal to live among them, to be like them, to learn their language so that he could share the gospel with them. But at the end of the day, unbelievers, the world, especially our secular world, thought that Chow was crazy because of one thing. They didn't understand why someone would be willing to die to preach Christ to other people. They didn't understand that these people even needed Christ. Who are we Christians to say that these people are worse off than us because they don't have Christ. But that's what the gospel teaches, that those who do not have Christ face an eternal condemnation. And how will they be saved unless someone preaches to them? At the end of the day, no matter what you think about Chow's methods of uh, showing up by himself on a beach, At the end of the day, people think he was crazy because he was willing to die for Christ. Well, in the same way, people in Corinth thought that Paul was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind for the way that he acted, the way that he lived his life, and for the way that he preached about Christ. And that is what we are going to see in this passage today. That's what we want to think about for ourselves. This is the lesson for us. Do you live a life that people think is crazy? Do you live a life that people think you are crazy because of your love for Christ and your actions and even being willing to give your life to preach the gospel. So that's the lesson for today. We're going to look at this passage, verses 13 to 15. Uh, We have the conclusion actually in the middle. Paul says in verse 14, we have concluded this, that one has died for all. We're going to start by looking at that conclusion. And then he gives us two results. The first one is the result in verse 14, therefore all have died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. And then he gives us the other result before the love of Christ controls us in verse 14. Controls us because we have concluded that one has died for all. So we're going to look at the conclusion and then those two results. The first Paul has concluded this, that one has died for all. Who is this one? Pretty clearly it is Christ, because he mentions Christ earlier in that verse. Christ has died for all. What does it mean that Christ has died for all? 
Some of you might be wondering, what do you mean? What does it mean? It means what it says. I want to spend some time on this phrase because this is one of those verses and how we would interpret this verse that uh, makes our church, let's just say, different. Uh, We are not in the majority of probably how many of us grew up in other churches and uh, many churches just around the world and in this country. Uh, Don't worry, we're not a cult if you're visiting, but uh, we do have a minority interpretation of a verse like this. Most people, I think, would say that when Paul says Christ died for all, this means that Jesus died so that any single person who ever lived uh, had their sins forgiven so that it is possible that if they believe, their sin, they will be saved. Their sins will be forgiven. So in other words, they would say Christ died to make salvation possible. And then it's up to you if you're going to decide to be saved or not. Whereas what we believe is that Christ died to actually save his people. Christ dies for a particular group, uh, a a church, a group of people. He dies for his people. And he came on a mission not to make salvation possible for those people, but effectual, actual salvation. So, is that what it says here? Some of you might say, well, doesn't it say Christ has died for all? So you got to do a lot of gymnastics and explaining to say, does it mean all? Well, let's think about what does the Bible say? So let's look first at many parts of the Bible. What is the purpose of Christ's death? To make salvation possible or to actually accomplish salvation? Well, we can look in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53 when it speaks about the death of the Messiah. And in verse 5, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. So whatever Jesus did, it actually accomplished healing. Those sins were actually paid for, not possibly paid for, but really paid for. Who does he heal? We, us, the people of God. Now, verse 11, Isaiah 53, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He makes them righteous. He doesn't give them the possibility of being righteous if they would accept it or would like it. He actually makes them righteous. Who is it? Not every single person in the world, but many, the many, a group of people. So that's the Old Testament. And then we have Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And I lay down my life 
for the sheep. Who does Jesus lay down his life for? The sheep. Some are not his sheep. Which means that Jesus did not lay down his life for them. He laid down his life for the sheep, for his own. His own who know him. Well, we have Jesus. We have the Old Testament. We also have the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He laid down his life for a particular group of people called the church. So if we look at the whole Bible, and I know there are other, many other passages we could look at, but if we look at the Bible, we see what was the intention of the death of Jesus? Was it to make salvation possible or to actually pay for their sins? It was to actually pay for the sins of the people of God. And if Jesus actually pays for the sins of every single person who ever lives, then every single person is going to heaven. Now, let's look at verse 14. We also see in verse 14, when it says, One has died for all. Notice that word, for. For means in your place. In the place of someone. As a substitute for someone. He actually dies in the place of these all, whoever these all are. Now, I think um, the, the other side, they would say, well, look, if it says he died for all, and that, if you interpret all to mean every single person, then it has to mean He's not dying to pay for their sins. It has to mean he's dying to make it possible. So, now we have to see. Well, what does all mean? All doesn't always mean what you think it means. All can mean something different in different contexts. Uh, Every single week... Our pastors come up here and they give a welcome. And usually in the welcome, they might say something like this. We're having lunch after our service today. All are welcome. What do they mean? All are welcome. Every single person who ever lived in the history of the world is welcome for lunch? No. You know what they mean. And you know what they mean because there's a context. They're talking to a group of people in a church right in front of them. And they're saying, all of you are welcome for lunch. Leo told me I could use this example because I was talking to him about this. Let's say Leo makes uh, ribs. So he wakes up really early Sunday morning and makes a bunch of ribs on his grill. And he stands up and he says... There is enough food for all. What does he mean by that? Does he mean 
Everybody in Beijing can, can be flown over to our church and there will be enough to feed all of Beijing? No, he doesn't mean that. He's talking to this group of people. There's enough for all of us here. So all can mean different things. So what does Paul mean when he says one has died for all? Well, there are many things that the, the Bible could mean in different places. Sometimes it means all nations. It doesn't mean every single person. It means some people from this nation and that nation and that nation. All peoples. Sometimes it means Gentiles instead of just Jews. He didn't just die for Jews, but he died for all, for the Gentiles as well. Um, in Luke chapter 2, this is my favorite example, uh, it says in verse 1 that Caesar made a decree that the whole world should be registered. Now, what did Luke mean by that? Did he mean that um, those people in Peru and in Papua New Guinea who were alive at that time in zero year zero, did he mean that they were going to be registered? Well, he says the whole world. No. He means the Roman world, the world of the Roman Empire. So, words like world and all, they don't always mean every single person that is living today or that has lived throughout history. Now we can look at verse 14, and we know exactly who he's talking about. Because he says, one has died for all, therefore all have died. Who are the all that Jesus died for? It's the all who have died. Okay, I hope you're still following me. Who, what does it mean to have died? What is, what is those who have died? Well, look at Romans 6, 7 through 8. One who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Who are those who have died? They are those who have been actually set free from sin. They are people who have been saved. People whose old natures have been put to death and they've been given new life in Jesus Christ. So, all have died. That's not every single person in the world. That's not every person who ever lived. It is all who belong to Christ. All of the people of God. If you are a Christian, you have died. Because... One has died for all of you. All of you who are dead in Christ. All of you who trust in Christ. Now, I know there, uh, we haven't answered every question or every objection. Uh, I would love to talk to you about this if you do have more questions. We can talk after our service today. But then the question is, well, why does Paul use that word? Why doesn't he say Christ died for many or for some? What does he mean by all? 
Well, he tells us in verse 16, he tells us we regard no one according to the flesh. And so what he means by saying all is uh, that we regard people according to the flesh, meaning based on their outward appearance, based on their social status, uh, how much money they make, what they look like on the outside, what their skin color is, all these things. And Paul is saying we don't regard people according to those outward things. Why not? Because Christ has died for all. Not every single person, but for all kinds of those people. Christ has died for all skin colors, for all ethnicities, for all social and economic statuses. Christ has died for people, his church, from among all those different groups of people. So, we do not regard people according to the flesh. Christ has died for every kind of person. Now, that's all theological, that's all doctrinal stuff, but we can't get past Paul's main point here. What does he mean when he says Christ died for all? It means he's died for every kind of person, and so that is relevant to you. You have no excuse for rejecting Christ. Christ has died for every skin color. Christ has died for every ethnicity. Christ has died for every education level. Christ has died for every level of wealth. There is nothing that you can say that is lacking for Christ for you. You will know that if you come to Christ, if you trust in him, That he has died for you. That your sins have actually been paid for. Your sins will actually be forgiven. Not possibly forgiven based on something that you do or the strength of your faith. But actually paid for because all the work has been done by Christ. And you will know that it was done for you if you put your trust in him. So you have no excuse to not come to him. Christ has died. Trust him. Come to him today. So Christ has died for all. Now let's look at the two results of that. Result number one is that all have died. All have died. Verse 14. We're going to look uh, next time we're here at verse 17. That if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. We saw earlier Romans chapter 6, you are dead to sin. If Christ has died for you, then you have died. Your sinful man has died. But It's not all he says. And he goes on in verse 15. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ died for all so that we would live. 
We didn't just die. We also are alive. This is symbolized in baptism. As Romans 6 talks about, when you are baptized with Christ in his death, you are also united to him in his resurrection. And so you go down into the waters of baptism to represent your death, but you don't stay down in the water. You come up out of the water. Why do you come up out of the water? Because you've also been given life in Christ, and now you are called to live a new life through Jesus Christ. You have died, but you also live. This week I read a letter from Frederick Douglass, who was the abolitionist in the 1800s, and he escaped from uh, his master who, who owned him in slavery and went to Massachusetts, and he wrote a letter to his former master, basically just like, ha-ha, rubbing it all in your face, uh, all the terrible things that you did to me, and I want to tell you now that I'm free. But in his letter, uh, he, you can just see his joy and his excitement over the new life that he has. He talks to his former master about how he got his first paycheck, and he was so excited that he could spend his own money on whatever he wanted. He didn't have to get permission. He was so excited about how he was able to get married and buy his house, and he was able to have children and have his children learn to read and write. And he talks about how he's watching his children reading and the joy that it brings him. Now for us today, something like that is so taken for granted, right? We just think it's nothing that we can own our own house and get our own paycheck. But for someone who knew slavery, he also knows the joy of being free. And that's what Paul is saying here for the Christian. You were a slave to sin, but now you're alive in Christ. You are free from the burden and the baggage and the condemnation and the power of sin in your life. So live as someone who is alive. Live as if you are free. And so how do we live? Well, he says there in verse 15 that we are to live. Those who live might no longer live for themselves. First, we're to not live for ourselves. There's a lot of living for yourself in our day. Many people find, uh, think that their purpose in life is just for them to live for themselves and seek after what is pleasurable or fun for them. Many people today uh, say that they want no children because they want a life where they are free. They want a life where they can travel and make a bunch of money and keep their money and have a life full of pleasure and fun. It's because they're living for themselves. 
People in Corinth were probably living for themselves. It was a very rich place. People were seeking more money. People were seeking more status. And and that was their purpose in life, was to get up into the ranks of society. People today live for themselves. Maybe you've heard of narcissists. It's where the word narcissist comes from. Uh, A narcissist is someone who is obsessed with themselves. And it's from the Greek myth of Narcissus. Uh, He was a young man. He was apparently a very handsome young man. And he found himself staring at his reflection in the water. And he became obsessed with his reflection. He loved himself. And so he stared at himself and his reflection for the rest of his life, which didn't last very long because uh, when you don't eat, you die pretty quickly. So he stared at himself and stared at himself, obsessed with himself so much that it destroyed him. And so that's why we call people narcissists, because narcissists live for themselves so much that they actually destroy everything. They destroy their lives, they destroy their families, and and most relationships that they have. Well, there are a lot of narcissists. And there are a lot of people who are ruining their families. And society is being ruined, mainly because people live for themselves. So we are called to not live for ourselves. But he also says to live for him live for him who died and was raised for your sake live for Christ your life is not your own you have been bought with a price so how do you live for Christ well, it depends. You can live it out in different situations. Uh, if you are a single person, you might be tempted to make life all about you because pretty much you're worried about yourself. You don't have to worry about a spouse or children. Uh, so you might be tempted to live for yourself. But what does the Bible say is one of the main blessings and purposes of being single? Not so that you can live for yourself. But because in 1 Corinthians 7, you can devote yourself more fully to the work of the Lord. You have more opportunities to serve Christ on a larger scale, to serve other people when you are single. Don't make your singleness about yourself. Don't make your single life all about what you want to do. Use your singleness to serve Christ and live for Christ. How do married people live that out, though? Well, we live it out in a a different way, but we are still called to serve Christ. In a smaller scale, our main calling is to serve Christ in our families. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How do you display Christ to your wife? How do you serve Christ? By Loving her the way Christ loves the church. And so, men, your responsibility 
is to love and serve and die for your wife, not to live for yourself. And so when you've had a long day at work and you want to sit, go home and sit on your lazy boy, the purpose of your marriage is not so that your wife can then bring you snacks and drinks while you watch TV on the lazy boy. No, the purpose is for you to come home and then die to yourself. Love your wife. That might mean changing diapers for her or calming down the other crying children. Whatever it is, you serve Christ by serving your family. As parents, we do not live for ourselves but for Christ when we seek to train our children to grow into men and women who will grow up and serve Christ. Even people today who have children, a lot of them have children because they want to be fulfilled by their children. And they have children because they want their child to be what they could never be. And so you know these parents. They're driven for their child to be the next star, the next concert violinist, the next famous football player, or maybe for some of us, the next Jonathan Edwards. I want my child to be the next Edwards. And so we put all our pressure, we put all our efforts towards making children that will make us look good. And sometimes even when it comes to obedience, we don't want their obedience because it pleases God and it's good for them. We want their obedience because it makes me look bad in front of other people. People are going to think, I don't have it together if you don't obey me. And that kind of pressure, the narcissism, actually crushes our children. And so we need to have our attitude as parents that we want to serve Christ. We want to love our children so that they will grow up and serve Christ, not to be many me's. How do you live for Christ? You also kill your sin. You love your church. When Jesus appeared to Paul, Paul was persecuting the church. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so if the Bible says that the way to persecute Christ is to persecute his church, then I think we can draw from that that the way to serve Christ is to serve his church. If you love Christ, you will love his church. So one of the main ways that you live for Christ is by living for his church. Maybe living for Christ for you means proclaiming the gospel. I know that uh, not everyone in this room, especially not, not every man in this room, is going to be an elder. And you're not all going to be missionaries. But I find it hard to believe that out of so many people here, you would say, no, God doesn't want anybody to be an elder one day. God doesn't want any of us to be missionaries. And I find often that when you talk to people about things like going to North Africa where there's ISIS, people say things like, well, 
I want my children to live near their grandparents. And if that's your reason for not going to North Africa, you're living for yourself. I'm not saying that we're all going to be called to go to North Africa, but I'm saying that the reasons are not because we want to live for ourselves. It's not because I have a good job here and I make plenty of money and I have a comfortable life here. It's not about us. We don't live for ourselves. We live for him who died for our sake. One other way that we do not live for ourselves I want to talk to those who have not been baptized. If you have not been baptized as a believer, baptism is one of the ways that you stop living for yourself and you live for Christ. In Baptist world, we often talk about baptism as my profession of my faith. If I can say it this way, it's almost like I'm coming out of the closet as a Christian. I'm going to tell the world that I'm a Christian. That is true. That is part of baptism. But there's another part of baptism. It's God taking you visibly as his. You can think of it like the farmer who puts a brand on the cattle that says this cattle belongs to me. In Matthew 28, when we are baptized, we are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Revelation 3 says that those who belong to God will have his name written on their foreheads. How do you have your name written on his forehead? You are marked by God, marked out that you belong to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have been branded by him. His seal has been put upon you. And so if you trust in Christ, I understand if you say, well, I know that I believe in Jesus in my heart. Why do I need the, the coming out party? I don't need a big deal made about me. That's not all that it is. If you trust in Christ, Belong to God. Identify yourself with him. Have his mark upon you. Be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So that that name is on you for the rest of your life. So that is the first result. If Christ has died, we've died and we live. So we don't live for ourselves, but for him. Now result number two And we won't spend as much time on this one. Result number two is at the beginning. We are compelled by the love of Christ. Notice again verse 14. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded that one has died for all. When you come to that conclusion, you are compelled by the love of Christ. Now, first, back in verse 13, Paul defends himself and his insanity. Uh, Maybe the Corinthians think that he's crazy. Uh, It might be the way that he speaks. Remember, they're all about eloquence in Corinth and special ways of speaking. 
Paul is plain speaking. He's very blunt. You know, maybe, you know, you know these people that they just say things and you say, wow, that's awkward. Why did he just say that? Uh, maybe Paul was like that. Paul is just going to say it, even if it's awkward. And people are like, eh, there's something wrong with Paul. He's not normal. He just says things that polite people don't say. Maybe it's the way he acts. Maybe it's the fact that he gets beaten up and then he goes right back to the same city to preach the gospel again. He's willing to get beaten up and to die for Christ. And so he says, if we are beside ourselves, if we're crazy out of our minds, it is for God. It's for God. I do all these things that make you think I'm crazy because I love God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. Everything that I'm doing, I'm not actually crazy, Paul is saying. It's for you. So whether you think I'm crazy or not, I'm doing it for God. I do it because I love you. And then there's that word for in verse 14. I do all these things for God because the love of Christ controls me. Uh, I prefer the word constrained, constrained by the love of Christ. Makes me think of uh, when we're on the highway, there's an accident on 87, as there always is, and uh, everybody's getting into the right lane. And it doesn't matter how much of a hurry you're in, it doesn't matter if you want to stay in the left lane because you're about to get off on that exit. You are constrained by the accident up ahead. You have to get over. That's what Paul means here. I have no choice. The love of Christ works upon me so that I have to do the things that I do, which you think are crazy. Of course the world thinks you're crazy because they don't know the love of Christ. They haven't experienced this love constraining them. And so what we need is more of the love of Christ. Think about the Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. Think of the curse that he endured, that you deserve. Think of the privileges that he gave up as the Son of God to humble himself, to become like you. Think of how he loves you to the uttermost, to the very end. Think of how many times you have sinned against him. You have spurned him. You have let him down. You have failed him. But he still loves you. And he continues to love you. He will always love you. He loves you to the uttermost. And if you know that love of Christ, you will be constrained. Christ is not ashamed to call you his brother. 
And so you are not ashamed to preach of him. Christ ever lives to make intercession for you. It's his purpose in being alive now and being up in heaven is so that he can pray for you. That constrains you to pray to him. He gave up his life. So we pay a small price in what we give up for him. People might think you're crazy because of how much money you give away. People might think you're crazy because you'll take your cute little kids to North Africa and they might even die. People will think you're crazy that you give up a good job to preach the gospel. People will think that you're crazy that in New York you will stand up boldly to speak of Christ. But you say, I have no choice. I am constrained by the love of Christ. Christ did this for me. I will give up just a little bit for him. Christ died for all. Christ died for me. The love of Christ constrains us. Let's pray. God, we confess our need for you and the hardness of our hearts toward your love. And we pray for the help of your spirit to help us to see the love of Christ. Help us to daily meditate and live our lives in light of the fact that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And so, Lord, we pray that we would give you our lives. That our lives would be a present that is far too small for love so amazing and so divine. We pray that we, your church, would proclaim your great love and that you would redeem your people and bring them in that your name might be glorified. We pray, Lord, that all of our life would be to your glory. Amen.